bird and all that dirt and manure growing up in farmland would have been incredibly beneficial for your gut microbiome. And if you grew up in suburban America, kind of like I did, we really don't have any concrete data on what this sort of middle environment did to the resiliency of our microbiome. Welcome to Gut Check Radio, the health and wellness podcast giving you the confidence to trust in your gut. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Belden, a board-certified chiropractic physician and functional medicine practitioner. And just for those of you who are aware, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only and are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition and do not apply any of this information you hear in this podcast without first speaking with your physician. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Gut Check Radio, episode number 40. Today, we are going to be going through my framework for how I think about the gut microbiome. And as someone who's been inundated in this space for about the past five years, pretty heavily, this is my favorite area to research and work with people clinically. So I feel like I sort of have this unique perspective on some of the things that I've seen in combination with some of the things I've read. And I'm always thinking about in what ways can I disseminate really large topics into these sort of, I don't want to call them simple, but these basic frameworks, these these basic questions that we are asking when we are trying to answer the underlying question. And the real gut check moment that myself and I'm sure many of you out there listening can empathize with is whenever someone says, hey, uh, what's a healthy gut or what's a healthy microbiome? That is such a large scale question and a question that I don't think we will have fully answered for a very long time. But that doesn't mean that we don't get the opportunity to begin to experiment with questions or frameworks that might help us really deduce down what is it that makes a healthy microbiome. And one of the first things I thought of is I don't necessarily think it's the right question to ask how healthy or what makes a healthy microbiome, but I think a better question and a better framework is what makes a resilient microbiome. Those of you out there are probably very familiar with the term resiliency, and it is essentially our ability to respond to an environment, situation, or a stressor that we previously weren't expecting. So a resilient person, we all can imagine a resilient person who they get hit with a problem, they respond very well, they remain cool, calm, and collected in the moment, and they're very adaptable, very adaptable humans. And that's the same way that I view the microbiome. We'll get into this here shortly, but how many times have you gotten food poisoning while traveling? How many times have you been on antibiotics in your life? How many different kinds of fruits, veggies, nuts, seeds, and overall plant material do you consume in a week? All of this helps us determine how resilient your microbiome is. And then ultimately it really helps us decide, hey, do you really need to incorporate measures to really try and optimize your microbiome? Because if your microbiome is already very resilient, you probably just have to go into maintenance mode instead of doing all these crazy detoxes, probiotics, elimination diets, what have you. So this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but it is my best attempt to come up with a list that builds us as big a picture as possible on your microbiome resiliency. So the first question is how many different kinds, different and distinct kinds of plant foods are you consuming per week? Now, what I mean by that is say you had a soup for dinner that had carrots, onions, and corn, that would count as three different types of plant material. 
But if you also had that soup the next day for lunch, you can't add an additional three because that's three different plant material you've already had within that week. So it's how many different and distinct kinds of plant material you had within the week. And we break this down into one of four categories. The first one is less than 10. The second one is 10 to 20. The third one is 20 to 30. And the last one is more than 30 different kinds of plant material in a week. Why does that matter? There is some interesting d data out there that shows that those who consume more than 30 different kinds of plant material in a week have greater diversity than those who eat fewer than 10 kinds per week. And that makes intuitive sense, right? Is you can imagine the person who is very conscious of their fruit, vegetable, nut, seed, overall fiber intake is going to be eating different kinds of all those foods throughout the week versus, you know, the traditional Western diet is very low in fruits and vegetables and it's very, it's very mono food. <laughs> Just the idea that it's, it's a lot of wheats, starches, and sugars. And so not a lot of diversity in general to it. And nutrition is one of the most powerful tools we have to alter the microbiome. And I actually am beginning to believe that's why, or that's part of the reason why nutrition has such a profound impact on our overall health is because of its impacts on the microbiome directly. And like I said, specifically the diversity of plant and fibrous foods we consume within the week, in my opinion, has the most profound impact. The phrase, eat the rainbow, honestly, I've poo-pooed that in the past, but I really think it's a really good starting point for developing a microbiome diverse diet. And like we'd already alluded to, then you would ask the follow-up question, how many colors in the rainbow do I need to eat in a week? And that one study pointed to more than 30. That's hard. I'll answer this question myself. I would say most weeks I'm probably getting anywhere between 20 to 30. And that's with a lot of effort and being very conscientious of getting different kinds of fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and plant material in general. So I would say at least get yourself at greater than 10 per week. And, and really what that alludes to is I, I've heard this rule recently at the one, two, three rule of fruits and vegetables. So if you have one fruit or vegetable for breakfast, two for lunch, three servings, or one, one serving, two servings for lunch, and three servings for dinner, most people out there, I know myself included, we like to stick to a lot of the, we meal prep the same stuff. But I think if you if you go to the grocery store and you're conscious about, okay, I'm going to get four or five different fruits, four or five different veggies, and then between the other things you probably eat during the week, maybe you go out and you probably have something different that has a fruit, vegetable, nut seed that you normally don't eat, which is also a good opportunity to do that. I think that'll get you definitely above 10, and that'll start to get you creeping into the 20 to 30. I like to have all of our people that I work with at least in the 20 to 30 camp. And then once we've really made a habit out of that, then we can start to work on, okay, 30 plus per week. The second thing is how many rounds or courses of antibiotics have you taken in the past five years? Antibiotics are one of the most fabulous creations of modern medicine. I, I just, that can't go without not saying, but that doesn't mean they don't come without their trade-offs. And we know that antibiotics affect our beneficial gut bacteria that are sort of caught in the crosshairs 
when we are prescribed an antibiotic to treat a sinus infection, upper respiratory tract infect, infection, or even infection within the gut itself. And these, thankfully, a lot of these beneficial microbes, they can grow back, and that can be aided by our nutritional and underlying health status. But really what makes it challenging is when we have repeated exposure to courses of antibiotics, and then it's just constantly being depleted, regrown, depleted, regrown. It's almost like taking out or just taking out the roots of your garden every couple of weeks and just replanting it. You know, it's, it's, it's not easy to come back from. And for some who end up developing digestive issues, namely IBS, it's not uncommon for the symptoms to commence after finishing one or multiple courses of antibiotics. Like you said, you sort of perturb the homeostasis, you perturb the good bacteria, you allow some of the opportunistic pathogens or maybe even an outright pathogen to outgrow and essentially the weeds start to take over the garden and then it's, you, get that, you get gut and digestive symptoms. And again, I'm not a prescribing physician, but antibiotics are typically, a course of them is given typically anywhere from 10 to 14 days. So what I tell people is if you've only been given once, maybe twice over the past five years, I'm really not that concerned, especially if they've been spaced out by any number of years. So if you had a sinus infection five years ago, you had another sinus infection 18 months ago, you know, that to me, that's enough time that your microbiome should have more than been able to adapt and respond to that setting. And speaking of resiliency, if your digestive system started after just one course of antibiotics, that is a very telltale sign that your microbiome could use some resiliency training. And things become challenging when we start to have several courses of these antibiotics over a short period. So say in the past year, you've had, I'll just use a, a patient of mine, in the past year and a half, they've had eight sinus infections, which means they've been on antibiotics eight times in the past year and a half. That is way too much. <laughs> that, is, that is a microbiome that has, or that's a garden for a better analogy term. That is a garden that has been continually had its flowers destroyed and continually had weeds just allowed to outcompete and overgrow. And if that is you, again, I'm not poo-pooing you because in many instances, antibiotics can be life-saving. But if you're looking to optimize or excuse me, better phrase it, if you're looking to add some resiliency to your microbiome, there are things you can do both during and after the course of antibiotics that you can go a long way toward mitigating any of the long-term side effects. And I actually created a free guide on this a couple of years ago. I'll put it in the show notes of this episode. It's called How to Keep Your Gut Healthy or How to Keep Your Gut Thriving While in Antibiotics. And one of the big things that I even recommend to a lot of my patients is one of the most powerful natural interventions we have is a, a probiotic called Saccharomyces boulardii, which essentially is just a beneficial yeast. And there is, there's, a, there's a number of studies, including some systematic reviews and meta-analysis that point to Saccharomyces boulardii being incredibly effective for preventing the antibiotic-associated diarrhea. And I would even go further as to say that it can also be a mild antifungal. So not only are you preventing some of the, the side effects and the symptoms, but you're also maybe even getting rid of some of the bugs that the antibiotics themselves are trying to get rid of. Third question is, how many times have you gotten food poisoning in your lifetime? And I sort of look at this on a yearly basis. So do you, do you get it yearly? 
Have you never had it? Have you maybe only had it once or twice in your life? Post-infectious IBS is becoming more recognized as a driver of digestive symptoms. And as the name implies, that means that after someone is exposed to a particular pathogen, they get food poisoning, whether it be from a restaurant or from traveling overseas. For whatever reason, their microbiome can't adapt afterward, and this pathogen is allowed to, this weed is allowed to really grow and really solidify its foothold within the garden, and then you develop IBS as as a consequence of that. And it's common for people to experience what's called traveler's diarrhea when our microbiome is exposed to a novel environment. So if you think about you're in America and you travel to Europe, or even probably a better analogy, if you're in America and say you go to Mexico on vacation, your microbiome is exposed to a new city with new water, which I'm sure some of you out there might be familiar with, and new food supply and just overall new air. And it's less common for people to experience lingering digestive symptoms after the initial episode especially if you're someone that has a resilient microbiome you can get food poisoning once and it's i don't want to say it's normal but it's it's not as a concerning factor versus if you continuously are getting food poisoning similar to the story around antibiotics to me if your travel itinerary will always include many trips to the bathroom (laughs) that's a sign that there's some resiliency training that could be had into the microbiome because like i said many people will bounce back to almost normal after a bout of food poisoning i'll use myself as an example maybe maybe over thanksgiving i tried a food i hadn't tried in a while and i i knew that i was kind of rolling the dice of trying this food but i I wanted to experiment because that's that's fun for me only to realize that that evening I had debilitating 10 out of 10 abdominal pain (laughs) and essentially was in the fetal position for several hours. (laughs) And that was more than likely an episode of food poisoning based on the symptoms, based on when it started, and based on the fact that it it went away the next day. I actually didn't have any, it was weird. I didn't really have any vomiting. I tried to vomit, couldn't, TMI for just helping relate my story. And thankfully, I really haven't had a, a change in my digestive overall symptoms since that episode. So that tells me that at this season of life, my microbiome is fairly resilient. And how, in regards to how frequently that someone gets food poisoning, do I start to get a little bit of cause for concern? If you've said that you've only had it a handful of times in your life, I'm not immediately concerned. It's when your answer starts to become, yeah, I get it yearly or every year I know when we go on this big Europe or big out of the country trip, I know it's going to happen then my ears start to perk up. <laughs> and and you don't even have to be the person who travels a lot to experience this. I've worked with people who, for whatever reason, they just, every week, I remember I had a woman a couple of years ago who every week, whenever she would go out to eat, she would get food poisoning. <laughs> and it, 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 it wasn't like she was eating raw fish and these crazy fermented raw foods all the time. She was eating normal meals and it just so happened that she would get nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea very often upon going out to eat. And to me, that is a massive sign that her microbiome needs some resiliency training. Question number four is I'll ask people, do you feel like you have food sensitivities? It's our view that a healthy microbiome should be able to tolerate the widest array of foods possible. And what most people think of as food sensitivities and, you know, the big ones being wheat, dairy, I'll even put spicy foods in there, corn, 
in our view, falls into one of two categories. It's either minor FODMAP intolerances or it's something called GI hypersensitivity. And we'll kind of unpack those a little bit. And that distinction is very important because I think some people have this idea that if they get a food sensitivity test, which I'll, I've probably talked about in previous podcasts, I'm not a, a big fan of those at all. But if somebody gets that test and say it lights up like a Christmas tree with so many foods and so many different categories, even foods they don't eat ever or that often come back as positive, some people on the interwebs will say, oh, you can you have a sensitivity to that food, avoid it all outright. And I just don't agree with that in the slightest bit. It is our belief that a lot of the quote-unquote food sensitivities are driven by changes that are happening within the microbiome. Part of the reason implementing a low FODMAP diet or low FODMAP template can be so beneficial is it almost it forces resiliency to happen because it, it in a sense it does sort of remove a lot of healthy foods like your broccolis your cruciferous vegetables some of your stone fruits onions and garlic that can act as prebiotics for the gut microbiome but essentially what you're trying to do is you're trying to play a, a Dar- darwinian game and you're trying to kill off the bugs that aren't very resilient and a lot of times the bugs that are resilient are the ones that are generally more favorable for us so Implementing that is a great strategy to help build some resiliency within the microbiome if you're dealing with what you feel like is a lot of food sensitivities. And things such as spicy food, a lot of that comes down to hypersensitivity. So you have these nerves within the GI tract that spicy food, you know, people think of capsaicin, which is actually a very powerful topical anti-inflammatory kind of analgesic or helping with pain. But sometimes these compounds in these spicy foods, when they make their way into our gut, they sort of tickle, for lack of a better term, some of these nerve endings in our GI, and that sends a pain signal both locally in the gut, because the gut has its own nervous system, for those of you nerds and are aware of the nervous system out there, but it also has connections with the brain. So it sort of has this two-way mechanism about how it could cause pain. And even though I don't order food sensitivity tests, I do have people that will come in having previously run them. And what you find is that if someone comes in and so many things it says they're sensitive to. To me, that's that's a sign of, like I said, a microbiome that needs resiliency. Because I've had some people who do that, and maybe they have some GI symptoms versus I have people who get a food sensitivity test, and they have almost nothing come back positive on it, yet they have gut symptoms. So they're not, in my view, they're not the most reliable thing. And if people in general are just reacting to a lot of foods, that's our view that resiliency training should be the top of their priority. You know, if you do a food sensitivity test and it says you're sensitive to beef, but you know you handle beef just fine, keep eating beef. The human body will always be the best feedback tool, especially in comparison to food sensitivity tests. Question five, and this one might be the most obvious question to ask, is how much fiber are you consuming per day? Fiber is far more than just the stuff that helps us poop. It helps with blood sugar and appetite regulation. It helps create beneficial short-chain fatty acids that help regulate our mood and can have a very powerful immune responsive effect. But regarding the microbiome specifically, why we're going to talk about fiber is because fiber can act as a fuel source for the beneficial gut bugs. And part of the reason that as we touched on in the first question, nutritional diversity or eating a diversity of plant foods. Part of the reason that's so crucial is by is because by proxy, fiber diversity will just come with it. If you have 
blueberries and kiwi, yes, they're both fruits, but they also have, and they're different kinds of plants, and they're different kinds of fruit, but they also have different types of fiber. Same thing goes for peppers versus broccoli. They have different types of fiber, so getting a diverse mix of fiber is will come as a side effect of getting a diverse source of plant material. And the question many of us try to determine on a daily basis is, hey, how much should I be consuming per day? And if you're like me, you don't really feel like tracking things. And you know, there is a time and place to track intake of how much fiber, protein, water, things like that. But for myself personally, I don't think that's the most sustainable approach. And this is why I fall back to that rule I talked about earlier, the one, two, three rule. I heard this from one of my former podcast guests, Tracy Burns. Shout out to Tracy if you're listening to this for saying that. And it's it, it actually makes it very implementable to increase fruit, vegetable, and fiber intake. You know, one for breakfast, two for lunch, three for dinner. Using that, you know, assuming that each serving of a fruit or vegetable probably has anywhere between, you know, two to five grams of fiber, you're going to get closer to that 30-gram threshold. And here's... I don't, I don't like to use the word hack, but a very powerful tool that I help get me, you know, above that 30 gram marker is flax and chia seeds. They mix really well in anything. They add some good texture and they don't really have a strong taste. So it's not like you might have a weird vegetable with some fiber and like, oh, it tastes weird. They're, they're kind of, like I said, have a pretty neutral taste. So it's a really good strategy to help get above that 30 grams of fiber. And the typical western diet is characterized by very low fiber and very high starch and very high sugar and if there's one recipe to really just dampen the diversity of your microbiome it's to eat a very high carb diet in the absence of high fiber so for people out there doing a lower carb ketogenic style approach you know there is some evidence that ketones can be beneficial in that setting for for the gut microbiome in the absence of fiber because you're not eating a lot of carbs so you're sort of switching metabolic fuel sources there from glucose to, to ketones. But if you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, you're also going to want to tandem that with high fiber. All right, now we're going to start to have some fun. Question six, what type of environment did you grow up in? And I really I put this down into three subcategories. Did you grow up in a farmland-type environment? Did you grow up in a very urbanized city? Or did you grow up in probably like most of us, suburban neighborhoods of America. And there is some very interesting evidence that shows that children who grew up on farmland have increased microbial diversity relative to kids that grew up maybe in urban city life. And I want you for a moment to maybe close your eyes if you're driving. Please don't do that. But sort of imagine what the environment of a typical farmland is going to look like in your head, especially in the context of a child, right? They're going to probably be outdoors a lot, exposed to all sorts of nature, animals, and subsequently microbes. And they're going to be, quote unquote, getting their hands dirty every day. I mean, to me, that's a microbiome. When we're talking about resilience, that's a microbiome that is getting a crash course in resiliency training. It is it is continuously getting encountered by new microbes that's sort of forcing the existing microbiome to adapt to its new normal. And now I want you to think about the total opposite. Think about the germophobic environment that our our friend Danny Tanner created in Full House. For those of you who haven't seen it, Danny Tanner was played by Bob Saget, rest in peace. And he was a he was a clean freak. And he was 
There was plenty of industrial chemicals that he was likely always using to clean. There was obsessive amounts of hand washing. Sounds familiar over the past couple of years. And rooms so clean that I imagine a microbe wouldn't dare book a night <laughs> in that hotel in Danny Tanner's room. And that's a microbiome that receives very little exposure and subsequently received very little resiliency training and therefore needs resiliency training in order to combat a lot of the stuff that happened. And who would have ever thought that being covered in all that dirt manure if you grew up on a farm would actually be beneficial for gut health? I can think of some family members right now who they, they're in the middle ages and they can eat almost anything without really any sort of GI upset. And then you talk to them and they go, yeah, as a child I was eating fuzzy hot dogs and <laughs> it was just the food was it was harder to come by for, for some of them and it was they would eat whatever they get their hands on and some of these people grew up on a farm and that just meant that they were just exposed to so many microbes now that does, i don't recommend you go out and eat fuzzy hot dogs but i think it's just a very interesting experiment and very kind of insightful lineage of oh hey you know exposing yourself to a degree as a child when the microbiome is really susceptible as we're about to get into it's a really good strategy to incorporate that resiliency training. But if you grew up in suburban America, as I and probably most of us did, there really isn't any existing concrete data on what that did to the microbiome. But there is one factor that can definitely influence the resiliency of your microbiome. And that leads us into our last question. Did you grow up with pets as a child? And if so, what kind? And then my opinion, my favorite childhood dog and just your favorite childhood dog in general was probably a great tool to train the resiliency of your microbiome. Notice I said dog, I didn't say cat. <laughs> unfortunately for the listeners out there, or not unfortunately, I think for me it's fortunately, I'm a dog person. But if you're a cat person, we can probably still get along. And pets have a unique microbiome. So growing up with pets exposes our microbiome to different microbes vis-a-vis -vis them. And having a pet around while we were under the age of three is even better because our microbiome is rapidly developing before the age of three. Thus exposing it to the microbes of our pets provides a very beautiful window into train resiliency. And I would, to me, I'll be honest, I haven't looked into this, but this just makes sense that free living pets like dogs and even cats, probably give us more of that resiliency training than enclosed pets, like a hamster or a goldfish. Now, I don't mean to say this for to give people a reason to go out and hold Nemo up to their face, but I just think it makes sense that when you have a dog or a cat and you're probably touching them daily, petting them, depending on their size, you may even be holding them frequently. I think that you're just, you're breathing similar air, you're in, corp you're in close proximity to them, you just have so much sharing of microbes going on in that situation. And I realize that some of these questions are sort of non-modifiable in terms of our upbringing, where, where you grew up on a farm without pets or a city life with dozens of pets, and you can't really change that at this point, so then I totally understand that. But I think if anything, it, it gives you just something to look back on, and you know maybe you're someone who currently isn't dealing with digestive symptoms at all, in which case you're probably not even listening to this, but... <laughs> and you are someone who grew up in a city without pets. 
And so for you, it's kind of interesting, or maybe you do have a lot of digestive symptoms and you grew up in those environments where your microbiome wasn't exposed to a lot of stuff. So if anything, it just maybe sort of helps build a picture of why you're at where you are. And then of course, the ones in the beginning about nutritional diversity, fiber intake, post-infectious IBS, and antibiotic exposure are all modifiable things. And we have a lot of tools at our tool belt from a, like I said, nutrition is one of the most powerful tools we have gut supportive supplements, whether they be probiotics, different sorts of herbal remedies, pro-motility agents. We have a lot at our disposal that we can use to help train the resilience. I didn't even mention fasting, but I'm myself experimenting with fasting and but different types of fasting as a method to sort of work on the resiliency of my microbiome. But I think advice, probably the most simple advice I can give is probably great life advice in general. That's improve or increase the diversity of your food and fiber intake, increase the diversity of people you interact with, just increase the diversity, get more experience. Get As you get cultural experiences with food, you'll probably eat foods you've never eaten before. And if you get sick or digestive symptoms, that's a good test that you need to improve upon its resiliency so then it becomes its own feedback tool. Thank you all for trusting me to be a part of your day. If you enjoyed the show and found it informative or entertaining, we invite you to share the love by leaving a five-star rating and review on your podcast platform of choice or by sharing this episode with your family and friends. And until next time, trust in your gut.